Welcome to Tax Notes Talk, a podcast from Tax Notes, the leading source of tax news, information, and analysis. Welcome to the podcast. I'm David Stewart, Editor-in-Chief of Worldwide Tax Daily. Joining me in the studio this week is Tax Notes Today reporter Jonathan Curry. Jonathan, thank you for being here. Glad to be back. As U.S. lawmakers are starting work on tax reform, the term reconciliation keeps getting thrown around. What is reconciliation and what are its limitations? Jonathan is here to help us sort it all out. Jonathan, what are lawmakers talking about when they refer to reconciliation? So this all starts in 1974 when Congress passed the Congressional Budget Act. And among other things, that bill established what's known as the budget reconciliation process to make it faster and easier to pass a bill dealing with the federal budget. Now, passing a budget is one of those basic duties Congress has to fulfill. And the ordinary process was becoming too cumbersome and too drawn out. And in the Senate, there was always a threat of a filibuster that could bring things to a complete halt. Budget reconciliation was supposed to fix all that. Okay, it's a budget measure. What does that have to do with tax reform? Well, as it turns out, everything. As we're recording this October 25th, the reconciliation process is chugging along with the House expected to vote tomorrow to approve a budget resolution that would set up a $1.5 trillion tax cut. And this is giving Republicans the opportunity to pass a huge tax cut without needing any help from Democrats. And they're doing this by integrating it into the budget process. Now, is this the same method they used to try and pass health care earlier this year? Yes, it is. And I think one big lesson we learned from the health care reform effort is that even with all its advantages, reconciliation still isn't a slam dunk. There are 52 Republicans in the Senate, and under reconciliation, they need to have at least 50 of them all on the same page supporting the same bill. But while those 52 senators are all part of the same party, they all represent different parts of the country, and some are more conservative than others. There's also a lot of conflicting priorities even within the same party. Could Republicans bring up their health care bill again under this process? They could, but they'd have to wait until after they finish with tax reform at this point, because you only get one crack at the reconciliation process per fiscal year. Now, if you remember earlier this summer when the Obamacare repeal effort initially faltered, there was some talk of pivoting from health care reform to tax reform by using the 2017 budget reconciliation process. They could have done that, but the 2017 version of the process expired at the end of September, so at this point they've missed their chance. Now, they're moving on the tax reform using the 2018 budget reconciliation process. And in theory, if the Republican leadership is really feeling jazzed up, they could try to combine health care reform and tax reform into one big reconciliation bill. But that would be a really massive and unwieldy bill, and I haven't heard anyone really advocating for that. Instead, Republicans will probably have to wait until after tax reform and instead use a fiscal year 2019 budget reconciliation process if they want to come back to health care reform. Okay, let's take a step back. How does reconciliation work? The reconciliation process begins with a budget resolution that's drawn up and agreed to by both the House and the Senate, and that contains what are called reconciliation instructions, which set fiscal targets for specific committees to try to meet. Now, at this point, the reconciliation instructions are usually pretty broad. They'll say something like, the Senate Finance Committee shall come up with changes in laws within its jurisdiction to increase the deficit by $1.5 trillion over 10 years. And that's it. It doesn't explicitly say how they have to come up with that $1.5 trillion number. Also, the budget resolution itself is non-binding. It isn't signed into law, meaning President Trump couldn't veto it if he doesn't like it. Instead, it just lays out the parameters of the fiscal goal, and then separate legislation is introduced to fulfill those instructions set out in the resolution. And although it's a process that is followed by both the House and the Senate, its use is primarily intended to make it easier to pass a reconciliation bill in the Senate. All right, what are the advantages of the reconciliation process? Well, there's a couple of advantages here. Uh, first, it limits the scope of amendments that can be offered so that they only relate to the bill being discussed. 
Uh, it also limits the amount of debate that can take place in the bill to only 20 hours. And finally, this is the biggest advantage. It provides a way around the filibuster, which if you remember from that classic Mr. Smith goes to Washington, it allows a senator to bring the process to a standstill. Now, normally, if you want to end a filibuster, you would need to get at least 60 senators to vote to invoke cloture, and that would end debate. But if the bill being filibustered is a reconciliation bill, it only takes a simple majority vote to end debate rather than the three-fifths vote. And that means that if you're the majority party, you don't need to pick up any votes from the minority party. And that makes for a big political advantage. It sounds like a pretty powerful mechanism if it allows you to just ignore the minority party in the Senate. What's the catch? Reconciliation turns out to be a bit of a Faustian bargain. You get this faster, streamlined process, but at the same time, terms and conditions apply. And the biggest of these conditions, the Byrd Rule, has the potential to really make things complicated. In addition, you might think that not needing the minority party means the majority can just do whatever they want. But it turns out it's not that easy when you have a razor-thin voting margin of error in the Senate. And we've already seen that dynamic at play this year. Senate Republicans failed to pass ACA repeal and replace legislation because they lost just three Republican votes, even though that was something that they'd all talked about repealing for years. Also, I think it's worth noting that reconciliation doesn't necessarily have to be a partisan exercise. The Bush tax cuts in 2001 were passed via the reconciliation process, and that legislation had a couple Democrat senators vote for it. Let's go back to that bird rule you mentioned. What is it and why does it matter? The Byrd Rule is a Senate-specific rule that was named after the late Democratic Senator Robert Byrd. It came about in 1985, about a decade after the reconciliation process was created, and that was because it was becoming clear that Congress was using reconciliation just to get around the Senate filibuster and pass legislation that wasn't actually related to the federal budget. So broadly speaking, the Byrd Rule prohibits the inclusion of what's called extraneous provisions, and there are six tests for determining what is considered extraneous. Now, for our purposes, that's tax reform, the most consequential test is the one prohibiting legislation from increasing the deficit outside of the budget window, which at this point is 10 years. Wait, if the current budget resolution calls for a $1.5 trillion deficit-increasing tax cut, how does that square with the bird rule? See, that's where reconciliation makes things complicated. It forces lawmakers to try to get creative to make their bill comply with these rules. And that one of the ways they can try to get around this is to have some of their tax provisions sunset or expire after 10 years. And at least on paper, that would make things go back to the way they are now. And that's what they did with the Bush tax cuts in 2001. But just a decade later, most of these tax cuts did end up becoming permanent with the passage of the American Taxpayer Relief Act of 2012. And after 10 years of lower taxes, the idea of letting taxes return back to their original level, especially so soon after the 2008 recession, was considered by many people to be a tax increase. So once you give people something, whether it's tax cuts or health care, it's proven that it's hard to take it back. Should we expect to see more sunsetting tax cuts? Yeah, probably. But that strategy may not be as straightforward this time around. Uh, what happened is that earlier this year, the Joint Committee on Taxation told House Speaker Paul Ryan's office that sunsetting a corporate tax rate cut, even after just three years, would have a deficit-increasing ripple effect in later years outside of that budget window. So then they'll have to find an offset for that, and then on and on it goes. Basically, every solution brings a new problem. Now, in theory, Republicans could decide that, rather than using tax policy estimates from the Joint Committee on Taxation and the Congressional Budget Office, uh, those are the traditional scorekeepers for both the House and the Senate, they could instead use tax estimates from the more friendly conservative sources that would conclude there would be much higher economic growth effects from those tax cuts. And that growth would be used to offset a lot of the revenue losses and could be a workaround to the Byrd Rule's limitation on long-term deficits. But doing that on legislation of this magnitude would be totally unprecedented, and that would be very controversial.
controversial. Are there any other limitations created by the Byrd Rule? Yeah, there's also the merely incidental test, and that prohibits the inclusion of provisions in the bill that produce revenue changes that are merely incidental to the non-budgetary components of the provision. This test in particular is pretty subjective, and that comes into play more with the health care reform bills than it does with tax reform. But it has been interpreted by many political experts to mean that a lot of regulatory provisions can't be repealed through reconciliation. And according to some experts out there, a number of abortion-specific provisions in the health care reform bills also wouldn't pass muster under this rule. Now, who actually decides what passes and fails the test? This all starts with the Senate parliamentarian, and she's sort of the in-house expert on Senate rules and procedures. She has sometimes been likened to a referee that declares when things are out of bounds, but the reality is that she's more like an advisor. Many Senate rules are self-imposed standing rules, and it's up to the members to decide how they're going to govern themselves. Now, ultimately, that decision over whether something is merely incidental falls to the vice president, who serves as president of the Senate. Uh, or it could fall to whoever is filling in for that position as president pro tempore. Currently, that would be the Senate Finance Committee chair, Orrin Hatch, and he's a Republican senator from Utah. It has also been openly suggested by some prominent Republicans that the Senate's presiding officer should basically just ignore the parliamentarian's advice if it interferes with their plans for tax reform or repealing and replacing the Affordable Care Act. If they can just overrule the parliamentarian, is there anything holding them back? Well, officially, no. But the Senate takes pride in its long-standing rules, and in general, it tends to be deferential to tradition. Anytime those rules are upended, it becomes major news. Also, while the idea of senators on the Senate floor raising points of order and shouting out objections sounds really dramatic, the reality is that most of these bird rule issues are dealt with ahead of time in, I'm not kidding here, this is the actual term, a bird bath. <laughs> and that's where lawmakers from both sides, along with their staff, get into a room and make their arguments for why provisions are or aren't at odds with the bird rule. And then the parliamentarian will issue her advice. Now, if senators know a particular provision won't fly under the bird rule, <sighs> they usually just remove it ahead of time or try to alter it in a way to make it comply with the rule. I think we're going to have to leave it there on that series of bad puns. Jonathan, where can listeners find you online to send you their own bird rule puns? Well, I'm not done yet. You can follow me on Twitter at JTCurry005. That's curry spelled like the spice, and that's where you're going to find all the hottest tax news. <laughs> well, thank you for being here. My pleasure. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. You can find me on Twitter at TaxStew. That's S-T-E-W. If you have any comments or questions or would like to suggest a topic for a future episode, you can email us at podcast at taxanalyst.org. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast to make sure you get the next episode of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Notes Talk is a production of Tax Notes. You can learn more about us by visiting www.taxnotes.com backslash products. When major media wants the straight story, they turn to Tax Notes. Thank you for listening and join us again for another edition of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Analyst Inc. does not provide tax advice or tax preparation services. Nothing in the podcast constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice. A full disclaimer is included in the transcript.